and welcome to a new series of At The Margin. This is a special set of episodes put together with the Irish Society for Women in Economics. Together, we've been able to organise a great set of episodes to both improve the exposure of women in the economics profession, but also to discuss some issues related to gender more generally. It's this latter focus that this first episode takes, where we discussed the gender pay gap in Ireland. I'm joined by Karina Dorley of the ESRI and Donald O'Neill of Maynooth University, both have looked at various aspects of women in the Irish workforce. Karina has charted the evolution of the gender pay gap in Ireland, while Donal, along with colleagues at Manute, has explored the evolution of earnings after childbirth for women. We also discussed some of the policy implications of these findings. Uh, this was really interesting. Uh, I learned a lot, and uh, I hope you find it equally as interesting. So without further ado, I'll hand you over to Donal and Karina. So thanks again, Donald and Karina, for taking the time to talk about uh, gender wage differences in, in Ireland. Um, I suppose to kick things off, it would be useful just to get some background and to understand um, the patterns of female labour participation over the past few years. And I know, Donald, you've done some some work on that. Maybe you could give us some insight to, to set the scene. Sure, Niall. Uh, so Claudia Golden describes changes in labor force participation in the US over the last 100 years, and she uses groupings, I think, that's going to be helpful when we come to think about Ireland. So at the start of the 20th century, she talks about women having to make a decision either to have a family or a career, but not both. Then you move into the middle part of the century and women were having careers and then families. And now at the end of the, the, the 20th century, women could have both a career and a family at the same time. One way to think of the situation is in Ireland is to think of that process on steroids. Okay, so to think of all of those changes squeezed into a much tighter, tighter time frame. So Golan looked at the start of the 20th century. In Ireland, we're going to look at, say, the 1970s. So if you look at the 1970s, male labor force participation in Ireland was about 80%. And for females, it was about 20%. And then you fast forward to today, the male uh, participation rate has fallen a couple of points, but it's in and around 70, 75. But the female participation rate has more than trebled. It's up into the, into the 60%. And the same is true when you look at employment rates rather than participation rates. But then when you drill down a little bit more deeper into the data, you see that most of this change in the female participation rate has been driven by married women and women, women with children. So in the 1970s, the employment rate for a married woman in Ireland was, was 10%. Today, it's up at, at 70%. And it falls slightly if, if, the, if the married woman has, has children, but it's still in and around the 60 to, to 70% change. So you can see the, the process that took place in the US over 100 years has taken place in Ireland over a much shorter period. So very rapid change. And then just one other illustration of that. We hosted uh, out here in Manu today uh, a meeting of the six female presidents of the Irish uh, universities. Three years ago, there was no female presidents of an Irish university. And today there are seven of the 13 are female. So, you know, if you think 1970 to 19 to today was, was a quick change, 
this is a further illustration of how rapidly things are changing in Ireland. Yeah. No, it sort of reminds me of economic performance in Ireland in general. It feels like we've sort of we've, we're sort of a, a trend of catching up um, and uh, a lot of a lot of growth in, in a short uh, period of time. Um, but I, I know you've done some work on maybe charting the effect that this change in labor participation has on maybe inequality and and uh household leveling income inequality and these sort of aspects is there anything you could tell us about that maybe that might be interesting that's i mean that's that's a tricky question to answer because you have to start drilling down and looking at who the the partners are are married to who the women that are are entering the labor force are are married are married to are they people from the the lower end of the income distribution or are they people from the higher end of the of the income distribution so the the answer to that question will determine will depend on where exactly those women are being drawn from and that changes that changes over time okay um okay well maybe we can move on to maybe discussing then how the pattern of maybe uh, the wage gap has charted over the last few years and Karina uh, I know you've done some work with colleagues uh, on just describing what's what what we've seen and then maybe going into maybe some of the, the fact decomposing any of these changes into maybe some of the factors underlying the trend uh maybe you could tell take us through some of your your work on that so just to link to what donald was saying as well so the the gender earnings gap which would be you can think of that as the product of the gender work gap and the gender wage gap is mainly driven by the gender work gap so work is driving most of the difference in earnings between men and women in ireland but also in other countries and um, so the, the the difference in participation rates and then in hours between men and women given participation is really the biggest part of that in earnings gap but if we want to talk about the gender wage gap we do know an awful lot about that as well so the gender wage gap is just the difference in our hourly wages between men and women and if you look back over time in Ireland, um, so if you look at the mid 2000s, and um, the gender wage gap was at a high of about 17%. So men had an hourly wage that was about 17% higher than women's. And um, today we're around 10%, which is below the EU average um, slightly, but it's been quite stable over the past decade. So it hasn't really changed much over the past decade, even though it's sort of on a downward trend. Um, but that average, that 10%, you know, you might look at that and go, oh, that's, that's not too bad. You know, we're below the EU average, we always like to say that. But it masks a couple of sort of nuanced patterns, okay, um, that are, um, some are particular to Ireland and some are not. So first of all, in Ireland, women are, are on average better educated than men. So that's not particular to Ireland. There's a trend um, over time in Europe and elsewhere of women becoming on average better educated than men. So if you thought about, you know, in the absence of career gaps or discrimination or anything else that you think might contribute to a wage gap between men and women, you might expect women to earn on average more because they are better educated. So that's not the case. OK, and the other interesting facet of Ireland's gender wage gap is that it's concentrated among high income private sector workers. OK, so. At the, at the bottom of the wage distribution, the gender wage gap is very small, and that's really mostly attributable to the introduction of the minimum wage in the year 2000. So that really compressed the bottom of the income distribution. Since women are more likely to be low wage workers, they benefited 
uh, more from the introduction of the minimum wage than men did. So the gender wage gap at the bottom of the wage distribution is very small now, whereas it used to be quite high. Um, where it isn't low is the uh, among private sector workers and particularly high income private sector workers. So in the public sector, going back at least 10 years, there is a very small gender pay gap. So it's it's close to zero at the bottom of the wage distribution in the public sector, meaning low wage public sector men and women earn approximately the same, controlling for everything that you can throw at a kind of wage model of this type. And when you go further up the wage distribution, it reaches about 5%. So that, that would be relatively low for high wage workers. In the private sector, at the bottom of the wage distribution, it starts off at about 5%. So it starts off at the peak of the public sector distribution and can rise to about 15% for high wage uh, private sector workers. So um, it's quite an interesting difference. So, you you know, you think about what's going on behind this. Um, the, pro the public sector, of course, it has a very formalized human resources pro process. There are um, very transparent um, means of being hired or promoted and it seems like this probably works in favor of women and um, so that I mean that's one potential explanation here there's also probably more flexibility and so on and um, but it is it is kind of interesting and points towards maybe ways to reduce the private sector gender wage gap you know if we can take some inspiration from the public sector um, so that, that so that's that's sort of the trend over the last while. So it's reducing, but it's still there. And that gender wage gap exists in basically every country in the world, right? Even if you look at the Scandinavian countries, there still is a gender wage gap. We're not we're not there yet. There's a long history of modeling the gender wage gap in the economics literature, and it tends to be divided into what we call explained factors and unexplained factors. So the explained factors, I mean, you can you can think of them as um, reasons why anyone's wage is different from somebody else's so that you know um, experience tenure education and so on so um if you think about the wage difference between men and women um you know historically i suppose education levels were uh, used to explain it and um, that's not really the case anymore but the types of education that men and women get is different even if they reach the same level or if women reach a higher level than men on average so the focus on um men in stem and their um sort of tendency to stay in stem after graduating from stem is very different to women's and that can you know that that explains part of the gender wage gap and um, things like experience so uh, women are more likely to take career breaks or to have time out of the labor market due to child rearing and childbirth and um, that also is an explained component of the gender wage gap and then you have sort of um, aspects that you might think, well, you know, this I can explain the gender wage gap using this, but does that mean that it's okay? So something like occupational sorting, where women sort into different types of occupation uh, based on their expected returns there. So women are more likely to work in family-friendly, sort of caring uh, roles, and those don't attract a wage premium. Um, men tend to sort into more technical STEM-based roles, and that, that also explains the gender wage gap. So there's these sort of so that's that's the explained component, right? So if we if we're modeling the gender wage gap, we can explain some of it using these. And um, the unexplained gap then is sort of as as it sounds, it's often attributed to discrimination, but you could also think, you know, it's driven by things we don't observe and um, preferences. Um, so I mean, typically um, 
women are more likely to trade off flexibility for wages. So they're willing to accept a lower wage in order to remain uh, in a flexible workplace. And um, they might also be less likely to change jobs because, uh, you know, concerns over that flexibility or um, an unwillingness to increase their commuting time and so on. So those are what you call the, the unexplained gap. Uh, the, un the unexplained components of the wage gap. And it's really the fact that just given the same observable characteristics, men are rewarded differently for them than women are. So you kind of have to ask yourself if it's women who are reducing their hours of work, you know, in response to having children, which is something we might talk about later. One response to that is that's just women's preferences. There's nothing to see here. Let's move on. But I think the, the right question to ask would be, well, where are those preferences coming from? Why is it that the woman is making that decision? Is it due to norms or is it due to some discrimination, as Karina talked about, that's baked into the system that makes it, in a sense, optimal for the woman to make that choice, but it doesn't make the problem go away? So, for example, as Karina was saying, maybe women choose into flexible occupations because it allows flexibility when it comes to child rearing. Um, but that's a symptom of the fact that women have to make these choices and men don't have to make these choices. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, maybe that brings us on to your work then, Donald, on um, we we're talking about, yeah, we we're talking about motherhood and you've done some mm -hmm. really good work on looking at the years after maybe childbirth and how that affects women's earnings. And maybe you could take us through through your study on that and, and some of the findings. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think Corinna did a really, a really good job of, of describing the patterns and, and she mentioned childbirth, but that's one of the things that's coming out in the more recent rounds of work is that if you look at the gender gap, it's a lot more substantial for, for married women and women with children than it is for, for single women. Okay. So one of the and this is this is related to the to the issue of a motherhood penalty or or a child penalty. So with my colleagues Aidan Doris and Olive Sweetman here at Minute, we use a an administrative data set provided by the Central Statistics Office to look at this issue of child penalties and motherhood penalties for university graduates in Ireland starting from from two thousand and ten. So these data, I mean, they're, they're, you talked about data earlier and the, the constraints that data limitations can put on you. And this is an example of where relaxing the data constraint can allow us to see things that we couldn't see before. So the data are ideal in the sense that they're, they're longitudinal. So they allow us to follow the same individual from the year they graduate up until the end of the sample, which in our case was 2020. So for instance, if we see a university graduate in 2010, we can see his or her earnings in 2011, 2012, 2013, which is slightly different to many of the studies that Karina was talking about, which was cross-section. You had a, a bunch of people in 2010 and maybe a different bunch in 2011. But by being able to follow the same people over time, we can hone in on what's happening to those people when certain things occur. There are also administrative data. So we've no problem with, with misreporting of earnings or, or things like that. And finally, they've been linked to 
uh, a lot of other data sources. So the earnings come from revenue, but we also have data from the Higher Education Authority. Coming back to something that Karina talked about, we have information on their leaving cert scores. We have information on what field is studied in university. So we can start asking, well, is this gap that we're going to look for, is it bigger among people studying business and law, or is it bigger among STEM graduates or, or whatever? Because there has been an argument that the, the type of work that people are doing can dictate how big this, this penalty is. So the first thing we do is we just, from an Irish point of view, we look at the gender gap between men and women who, who don't have children and men and women who have children. And we follow that over the early stages of their career. And when we do that, kind of as like what Karina said, for the women without children, we see a gap of about five to 10 percentage points, but it stays relatively constant over the first 10 years of the person's career. But when we look at women with children who have a child at some stage over this period, we see that they start off comparable to men when they graduate, they're earning similar to men in terms of weekly earnings. But by 10 years after graduation, they're earning 30% less than their male counterpart. So this is a huge growth among women who are having children. Now, it's pointing to the effect that the child, having the child might be important here. But of course, a, a critic could say, well, that's just women who have children are different than women who don't have children. And that's simply, it's not to do with having the child, they're just different people. So what we do to tackle that is we use what's called an event study approach, which basically hones in at the years around when the woman is having the child or, or the, the husband is having the child. And when we do that, what we find is if you look at the years before the woman is having the child in the build up to, to the child, uh, there's no real change in her earnings. Her earnings are tipping along the same as the male earnings are tipping along. But then in the year following childbirth, her earnings fall by 27%. Okay. And that's, that's not observed for men. When the man has the child, his earnings continue ticking along the way they were beforehand. And if this was a temporary phenomenon, it would be bad enough. But we're able to follow these people for five, six, seven years after they have the child. And what we observe is that their earnings do not recover. So even five or six years after having the child, their earnings, their weekly earnings are still 30% below what they were in the years uh, prior to the child. And I mean, what we find is that this is true, irrespective of the field that the, the woman chooses to go into. It's there in business and law, it's there in STEM, it's, and the magnitudes are very similar. 25 to 30% fall in the year the woman has the child without any noticeable recovery. And the fact that it happens precisely when the woman is having the child is really strong evidence that it's the, it's the, the birth of the child that's causing the earnings to fall and not just that these are different these are different types of people. Right. No, really interesting. And when I was reading your paper, so when, when, when you hear that statistic, first of all, you think, okay, well, after somebody's, after the childbirth, you have maternity leave, all that sort of stuff. But I understand that doesn't explain everything. Is, is that no, no. And, and in fact, the maternity leave, I mean, doesn't explain almost anything, you know, because right. we, we go the year after as opposed to, to the year of the childbirth. 
So the year after is tend to work, and most of these women are back working full time at at that stage. Okay, mm. so uh, now there is stuff about longer term whether extended maternity leave can be detrimental, but that's but that's not what's driving this result. These women, when they're back working on a regular basis, are still experiencing these thirty percent earnings falls relative to to what they were beforehand and relative to what the men who have children have yeah that is a huge that is a huge difference in such a short period of time i would have thought a lot of the effects would have been you know you're missing out on a few years you're missing out on those years of yeah. career progression all that sort of stuff but yeah. it seems to be more immediate than that there's something well i mean just coming back to what Karina says, these these look like big effects. And again, it's important to understand the variable that we're looking at. And, and we might talk about this later on, because when you're looking at this literature, you need to be careful whether you're looking at annual earnings, whether you're looking at weekly earnings, whether you're looking at hourly wages, because sometimes you'll see you'll see kind of different numbers and it, it's driven by their, that they're looking at different outcomes. So we're looking at weekly weekly earnings. So differences in weeks worked are not factoring into hours, though I might talk about it later, differences in hours clearly will be a part, a part of this explanation. But when you say it's it's a huge effect, it's it's in the kind of middle of the international range of what's out there. So there's more and more the the availability of these type of results is limited because of the data requirements involved. But there are more and more of these type of studies coming on board. And what you find is that when you look at, say, the Nordic countries, who we all tend to hold up as exemplars of uh, gender equality, they still report these childhood penalties of the order of 25, 30% after childbirth. And then there are some other countries like the German speaking countries where Austria and Germany, where the, 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 the penalty can be as high as 60% and, and take a lot longer to recover. So even though the, the number for Ireland may sound high, it's not an outlier. It's typical of what we tend to see when we look at these studies. It's interesting. And have you looked into maybe then the drivers of, of, of the change? Yeah, I'll, I'll start off by talking about one thing that we think we can rule out. As, as a driver, because I, I, I think this is important. There are, there are some papers out there that argue that this is simply women sorting into different employers after they have their child. So they're moving to more family-friendly employers and they're taking a pay cut in order to achieve that flexibility, okay? In the paper, we show that that's not driving our results at all. Most of the change that we observe in our data, most of the penalty is for women who stay with the same employer after they have their child. So it's not that they're sorting into all of this is what's happening with a given employer before you have the child and after you have the child. And I think that's really important because it, it focuses the attention on, on what's happening within a firm. You know, what's the nature of work within a firm? How are women making different decisions or how are they being treated within a firm? We don't have to start looking across firms and saying, okay, this is just a compensating differential for increased flexibility across firms. So this is something that's happening within firms, okay? Now, 
The next thing that we look at, so we rule that out. We don't think it's sorting across firms. So the next thing we look at is, is, the, is the obvious uh, point is what's, as I said to you, our outcome was weekly earnings. What's happening to their hours of work? Because that could be driving this, okay? Unfortunately, as I, I said, that the administrative data is great in that it's, uh, self, it's not self-reported. It comes from revenue, but the revenue doesn't have hours data in it. So to answer that question, we have to move to a different data set. We use the Growing Up in Ireland infant cohort study. Now we can identify it's around the same time period as we're looking at, and we can identify university graduates, which is the same cohort we are looking at, but they're not necessarily, they should be representative samples of both populations, but they're not necessarily the same women. But with the Growing Up in Ireland survey, we can look at the hours of work of the woman and her partner to some extent before they had the child and then after they had the child. And what we find when we do that is that there is a substantial reduction in women's hours of work after they have the child. The average before, and this again is for university graduates for a similar cohort to what we had the earnings for, their average hours of work before they had the child was about 38, 39 hours of work, you know, typical. And then it falls to 33 hours of work in the year after they have the child. And then again, crucially, doesn't recover in the five or six years that follows. Okay. So now because they're not the same person, we can't for definite say how much of it is due to hours of work, but trying as best we can to map the numbers from the administrative data with the hours of work data, we come up with a back of the envelope calculation that the reduction in the hours of work accounts for about half of the child penalty that we observe. So half of the fall in weekly earnings is because women are working fewer hours than they were beforehand and men don't. So the proportion of women who are working part-time doubles after the woman has the child and that persists even when, uh, you know, in the years that follow. Like what comes up to my mind is there, like there's two effects or is, and I'm, I'm completely ignorant here, but my, my take on it is there seems to be an effect where you have a situation that people are choosing into flexible jobs and that creates a sort of a, a distinction and then you have a situation where some other unknown discrimination going on perhaps the, the question you then like we say it's ours but then coming back to the discussion we had earlier why is it the woman right okay in the year of birth or maybe in a few months after we know why it's the woman that has to take the time off yeah. but in the two years or the three years or the four years that follow why is it the woman that's giving up for want of a better word the career you know uh to, to look after the child and, you know, when we talked about the change in uh, labor force participation in Ireland from the 70s up to now, one of the things that changed dramatically there was, was social norms and cultural attitudes to, to women working. So we've had this change in, in attitudes and in, in, in cultural norms. But there is a body of work that argues that Differences in those cultural norms, even differences that still exist, could be what's driving this. And there's a really nice paper uh, by Clevin and his co-authors where he looks at the gender penalty in the US, like kind of looking at what we're doing. 
but he looks for he looks at it for immigrants into the US and he looks at the cultural norms that were in the immigrants home countries now not in the not in the state that they wind up with and they find that immigrants who come from cultures countries that have conservative norms they suffer larger penalties even when they move to the US than immigrants who come from countries with more liberal attitudes towards women okay so i think that was a really nice way you know this is a a, a kind of a generation removed but the cultural norms that were evident when you were growing up still determine how you behave in the US when when you have a child and as i said i mean you know we tend to think of ireland as somewhat conservative but you look at these surveys we're in the middle of the pack like you look at these german speaking countries and in the survey 70 70 to 80% of austrian respondents still think it's not okay for women to be working and w- when you look at the child penalties they're really large in those countries now it doesn't saying that it's social norms and attitudes doesn't necessarily make our job any easier because these are hard things to change but coming back to what i said earlier the fact that we didn't have a female university president for 400 years and in the last 3 years we now have 7 out of 13 suggest that we still have scope to change people's attitudes and that may be maybe one thing that that we need to do that may be something that's hidden in the in the unexplained bit pick up on that Niall. i just yeah. thought that this the reference to the germanic countries is really interesting so i lived in germany for one of my pregnancies so first hand information here so and um, the social norms influence institutions so when i was working in germany in the uh, was 2012 2013 and um, childcare closed at Three o'clock in the afternoon, so it was impossible for women to work full time unless you had grandparents who were willing to step in. So it was just completely normal for women to work part time once they had children. And um, uh, women get uh, well, at least when I was there, they women got twelve months parental leave, and there could be an extra two months added to that if their partner took at least two months. So it meant that between them they could get 14 months if the partner took two month two of those months. So that that was I mean it, it's a clever way to get men to take parental leave because if when it's not the cultural norm um but I think there are much more effective policies in the nordic mm-hmm. countries where they have six months each or it, it, it's exactly equal time and I think that's that's kind of what's needed if you want to really um, push for a gender equality in the workplace it, it has to be use it or lose it both partners get a certain amount and it can't be shared and again but I don't want to again throw a dampener on it but in the US they try to have this in universities where men and women have to take uh, leave and the women when they took the leave used it to look after the children and when the men took the leave they used it to further their careers because they didn't have to teach anymore so again a different maybe social norm or social attitude you know it, it it's a tough it's a tough uh question to to tackle but uh, understanding what the root causes are i think is, is going to make it easier the other the other issue and again it's something we talked about and we've mentioned it indirectly here is this notion of of flexibility of work and this is something we might be able to do 
a little bit more quickly than changing our, our attitudes. So there's a there's a body of work out there, again, led by people like Claudia Gordon, who argues that a lot of this child penalty has to do with the way we organize work. Now, she talks about time greedy jobs, and these are jobs where you have to be there on call 24 seven, or you have to work on sociable hours in business to make to make connections and be there for your clients. There's a more recent paper by Asmith and her colleagues who calls them uh, how unique you are in your job, right? But it basically boils down to how many substitutes there are for you in, in your job, okay? So how special are you in your job? Now, if you're special and there's no substitutes for you in your job, you're gonna earn a premium for that. But the cost of that is that you have to be present in the job all the time because there's nobody by definition to substitute for you. And what Azmet and her colleagues found was that after women had children, they may not have been moving employers, which is what we found, but they were changing their roles within a job and they were less likely to take these jobs that demanded that they be present all the time again why is it the woman that's doing that and not the man that's you know that's a social norms issue but at least if we can change the cost make it less costly to be present in work and why is it costly to be present in work because you can't be off if your child is sick or or whatever but how can we make it less costly to be present we can have high quality affordable childcare. Right? And yeah. that makes it less costly for both the man and the woman to be present in work, right? We can change the nature of work. Employers can change the nature of work as well. You know, we all like to think that we're really special and we're unique and nobody could possibly do what we all do. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if if we worked in teams, we might be able to develop, you know, substitutes so as that if I'm off for a day looking after a, a kid who's sick, it doesn't mean that the business had to shut down. There's somebody who can come in and do the job. So changing the way we do work can can help on that front, and childcare can help on that front. I was I flip flop on whether technology can help us on this front. I was a big hope, a big fan that maybe things like remote working and technology would make us less uh, less of a requirement to be present in work, but our experiences with technology during the pandemic in the university sector has a has caused me to reevaluate, you know, whether technology is the panacea that we all think it might be. If it's a case where well, women might be selecting into jobs that they're less re- replaceable because they need the flexibility, but then it's the fact they need the flexibility is driving that. So it's getting to the it's getting to the core driver, I suppose, and then that comes back to the the social norm question as well. But maybe that's like a short term help and then the long term is maybe working on the on the social yeah. norms or something along those lines exactly um, i think we should be keeping in mind as well why we should be changing these social norms why we want to close the gender wage gap like it it's not optimal so um it has implications for female poverty uh women are more likely to be poor than men that's true during the working life it's also true in retirement where they have lower pension entitlements so that you know that's a big inequity if you like um, and not to be dramatic or anything, but it, it can also be linked to domestic violence. So there's uh, a large literature that shows that the relative incomes of partners 
um, determines their bargaining power. So I mean, in a kind of in a vanilla scenario, that's like, well, you know, do I get to spend money on this or can you buy that pair of shoes or whatever it is? But it can also lead to domestic violence. And there is there is a literature showing that the gender wage gap is linked to that. And then when we also think about the, the big challenges facing um, our economy and indeed many other economies at the moment, population aging. So we're going to be relying on a smaller workforce to pay for a larger pensioner population. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we are looking for a margin where we can, um, you know, encourage more people to join the labor force, that's women, that's women with children uh, who might be currently not working or working part time because of these barriers to their work and um, of which childcare is probably the biggest one, but the social norms are certainly playing a role there too. So the, the, there's all these reasons why we should want to close this gap. Unfortunately, there's no silver bullet, but um, priorities, childcare would be number one. I was just going to say, um, is there any immediate policies that you'd recommend? But you've, you've, you've jumped, you've got ahead of me on that one, Karina. Jumped so, the, gun. Child, so child I mean, the, nas- the national childcare scheme is a really good step in that direction so it was launched in 2019 um, and there's a universal and an income assessed component so if your child is in a formal childcare setting and they're between a certain age or your income is below a certain level you get some help towards that childcare Childcare is still really expensive in Ireland, even given that. So there was a reform to the national childcare scheme this year, uh, which gives a larger universal component. So that 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 means that anyone using child formal childcare like this is getting slightly more in subsidy than they used to be. Um, so again, that's that's a good step in the right direction. And there's talk about extending this to informal childcare because not everybody wants to use a creche or can get a place in a creche. I mean, indeed, supply is the biggest constraint these days. So the, there's still plenty to be done there, but I think we're kind of making making steps in the right direction in terms of policy. Yeah, Brian. Would you have any thoughts, Donald? Or no, I mean, I was thinking. I mean, you know, I would group them into. I mean, childcare would be would be the top of my list. There's also how we organize work. You know, I think that you know, in our data, we're we're not able to look down and see. We have this uh, gender transparency reporting going on now, where you get you're told what the average wage gap is by by different firms. Each firm over a certain size has to report their gender wage gap. And, and I mean, that's good in the sense that it shines a light on the problem. And, you know, and it causes firms to reevaluate, you know, because they know their numbers are going to be out in the public. But in terms of understanding exactly what's going on and what the root source of the problem is, I think we need to start having data that's looking at what's going on in these firms and what women are doing and how they're being treated after they have their child. We don't have that. I mean, we have a tendency sometimes in Ireland to think that data is something that's precious and should be held on to and not released and not shared. And in fact, the opposite should be the case. It's data that's going to shine the light on where the problems are and allow us to develop the policies to answer those questions. And we should be, rather than holding it back, we should be making every bit of data that we have available to researchers to help us understand what the problem is. And I would I would call for data that allows us to look at what's going on within a firm to see how women our, how their, their behavior is, is changing after the childbirth. 
policy, one thing I'll come back to something that Karina said, because sometimes we can we can beat up on government and, and policy, but the fact that the the gender gap has fallen so much at the bottom of the income distribution, and, and Karina attributes that to the minimum wage. I think the minimum wage, and particularly since the establishment of the low pay commission, is some aspect of policy that the government has gotten right. Right. And and the role of the low pay commission and the role of the experts on that commission in driving it forward and in driving the recommendation and in getting it evaluated before more state uh, increases are made or reductions are made. I think that's probably one of the best examples of kind of academics and policymakers and government interacting to get to get it right. And. And the advantages are clear in, in what Karina, Karina's work has shown. Now, I think in terms of the gender gap, we've probably milked that as much as we can because myself and Aideen and Olive have looked at some work to, that asks, well, what would a living wage as opposed to a minimum wage do to, to gender inequality? And the extra bite we're getting from going from a minimum wage to a living wage is not is not huge. I mean, going from nothing to a minimum wage was really good. Going from a minimum wage to a living wage, we're not going to get to get the same bite. But that is an example of a policy that really has helped those at the bottom. And it was never set out to directly help women, but Karina's work shows that it that it clearly did. I'll, I'll give you the statistics on that now. So before the introduction of the Irish minimum wage. The gender pay gap at the bottom of the wage distribution was 24%. So men's wages were a quarter higher than women's in the lower half of the, or the, the bottom decile. So the, in the bottom, like the lowest 10% of earners. And afterwards it was 5%. So it was massive. It was a really, really effective policy. I think it's going to be much more difficult to tackle the wage gap at the other end of the distribution, because there you're looking at controversial policies like gender quotas and female only professorships and things like that, that we've um, heard a lot about in the university sector in the last while. It's much more difficult. Well, somewhat positive note to end on. Uh, thanks, Karina, and thanks, Donald. Uh, I really appreciate it and for educating me on all these things. So uh, thanks a million. Uh, no problem. Thanks, Niall. Uh, take care. Bye.